Hello, and welcome to Who Wants to Be a Millionaire Associate? Or, welcome to The Lawyer Podcast. I'm Katrin Griffiths, editor of The Lawyer. And I'm Christian Smith, litigation editor of The Lawyer. We are hearing from almost every corner that the associate recruitment market, particularly for transactional lawyers, is very, very You would think then now that the outrageously hot market of a few years ago is behind us, that ever-increasing newly qualified salaries are a thing of the past. Well, you would, yes. But last week, Kat, Gibson Dunn upped the stakes again by offering its NQs the highest salary in the city at a whopping £180,000. But that pales in comparison to the upstarts at litigation boutique Pogus Goodhead, who last week, as exclusively revealed in The Lawyer, promised to make NQs millionaires. But there's a catch. If they win their cases. The social and environmental group action specialists are seeking to lure climate quitters who want to act on more positive cases, but who are reluctant to give up their pay packets at traditional city firms. And it's fair to say, the scheme has garnered a fair bit of attention. So, on this episode of the podcast, we break down what the scheme is, what it says about associates and boutique firms. And also what it tells us about the careers of the current crop of junior lawyers, both in litigation and outside it. What do they want and can they have it all? And to do so, we don't need to phone a friend, because they're right here. We are joined by senior litigation reporter Annabelle Tinson, who wrote the story on Pogus Goodhead, Richard Simmons, the lawyer's deputy editor UK, who previously edited the lawyer's student publication, and our new reporter Charlotte Lear, who previously worked in graduate recruitment and career development at a major city firm. First, though, just a couple of plugs before we start. If you listen to The Lawyer Podcast regularly, or if this is your first time, and you like what you hear, please do give us a rating on your podcast app, as it would really, really help us out. Second, as this episode is mostly about associates, we wanted to let you know about The Lawyer's new partnerless email, a weekly email designed specifically for associates, with all the latest about career, pay, promotions, and what other associates are up to. To sign up, if you're a subscriber, just go to thelawyer.com and look for the sign-up article in the Don't Miss section of the homepage. Right, plugs done. Annabelle, you've been covering this story about Pogus Goodhead's new pay arrangements. Give us the details. Sure, Kat. So um, to put it simply, Pogus Goodhead entered into a $550 million partnership deal with Gramercy, of which this whole new equity program depends on, and that allows for a £200 million bonus pool over the life of the facility, which has a three-year time window. As and when cases are resolved, Pogus Goodhead gets a percentage that can go to staff as cash rewards, while the funder gets the other percentage. It's a point-based system, so it depends on how long you've been working there plus the kind of cases you're on. 
Pogus Goodhead's global managing partner, Tom Goodhead, told us that the cash rewards could see partners paid between 10 to 20 million pounds each and NQs paid one to two million pounds each over the life of this facility. So the big monies are dependent on the firm winning some of the largest, larger cases in their portfolio though. So to remind listeners, some of the bigger group cases in their portfolio are the big case about the Mariana Down disaster in Brazil, as well as the Dieselgate case where they're taking 14 car manufacturers to court. So, so Annabelle, there's a lot of they could earn up to, they might earn up to. This is n- by no means a surefire bet. There's an awful lot of variables involved with this, isn't there? Well, exactly. I mean, points for confidence. If they can pull it off, I mean, they o- were only created in 2018, right? So if they can pull it off in the next couple of years, well, the firm's still very, very young. So, but this is dependent. Like I said, it's a point-based system. So it depends how long you've been working at the firm. Um, my understanding is that if you're potentially uh, one of these associates on one of these larger cases, like Mariana Dam or Dieselgate, you're, you know, that that will be the person that might see this pay packet there. And a, and a lot of the success of uh, claimant firms like Pogus Goodhead are, is based on how much outreach they can make in the media to get those claimants on board to a large extent. They've just launched their own podcast about the Mariana Dam case. So there you go. So to what extent, therefore, is Pogus Goodhead's move simply a massive publicity ploy to make their name known and is incredibly searchable via Google? This type of litigation, obviously, it works off marketing they want as many people to join these claims as possible they want a lot of publicity for these claims it's not like you know usual litigation where they're trying to keep it quite secret it's very much the marketing strategy is very very important to the overall um, success of the claims a lot of this money is obviously conditional i mean before people go and hand their notice in at gibson dunn or quinn emmanuel or something like that they're going to have to wait a long time to get this but they're still getting a, a salary as well they're not dependent on getting this getting this money from the cases. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Well, then, I mean, bringing everyone else in as well, I mean, traditionally, litigation associates don't have a lot of say over the sort of cases they work on in terms of the clients, and it sort of reflects this this growing trend that associates are pickier about which cases they want to work on and which clients they want to work on. I mean, what are you seeing in that area, Rich? I think it shows that the wheel really turns in, in terms of what's fashionable, for one thing. Uh, you know, these these practice areas come in and out of fashion all the time, and sometimes a certain area is hot and sometimes it's not, and litigation is having a moment right now. But I think also, uh, we talk a lot about consolidation in the market and firms coming together, but actually in litigation there is a bit more diversity in the market than there was. You have these smaller firms doing different things that offer different opportunities to litigators where once upon a time they wouldn't have been able to go off and and do something a bit different. It's definitely something that we see in our coverage of the litigation market compared to other areas that there is not that consolidation. So every time, you know, you tell me or Matt Byrne tells me, oh, we're going to see more consolidation this year, I'd say, well, no, we're not, because we're seeing, you know, in many ways, a new wave of litigation boutiques set up at the moment. And then, I mean, a lot of this is anecdotal evidence, but from a lot of the kind of senior litigation partners I speak to at firms, at big firms, they are saying they are seeing a more demand for trainees wanting to qualify into litigation because they're finding it 
the sort of work that is 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 available to them there much more interesting now and then b that there is the need for those litigation associates because there's so much more work going on there now i mean Charlotte, you obviously have come from an environment where you're dealing with trainees and um, recruiting associates in general. Is that something that you've been seeing as well? Um, in terms of like trainees wanting to go into litigation and qualifying there, I guess that has always been like a really solid option because you get those people that kind of start on their training contract and they've always wanted to be a litigator and that's where they end up. But I think it's interesting to see that now the, the litigation market has picked up, that's becoming a much more viable option for trainees on their training contract who haven't necessarily considered it before. I mean, we've literally just had one of our re- other reporters come back from a meeting about half an hour ago with a big international firm saying litigation is one of their most in-demand sectors for, for qualifiers, regularly oversubscribed and got about 25 applicants for an associate's uh, position they, they hired recently. Um, so it's it's really noticeable right out in the market. Um, and just to add to that, uh, with these bigger cases, that's defence and claimant side. I've heard from firms that, you know, in the Competition Appeal Tribunal, in all of these big, large group cases that we're talking about, people need associates. They're actively on the lookout for associates because these cases uh, require huge firepower. Um, so, yeah, they need a lot more people uh, supporting them. And actually, Annabelle, you did a story today, didn't you, about the firms that are hoovering up those kind of cases. And, and you know, to your point, Christian, about consolidation, again, on the defendant side, on the institutional side, there is kind of weirdly a consolidation, which is exactly what your research found. Annabelle, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the piece looked uh, specifically in the Competition Appeal Tribunal in the class actions market. At the moment, what we're seeing is a consolidation of the defence side. Four firms are now completely hoovering up the market. They're taking up almost... They're defending almost 50% of of the the mandates out there. And that's, you know, Herbert Smith Freehills, Linklater's, Slaughter's and uh, Freshfields. Um, And and they've got really big teams. You know, the competition litigation practice at Freshfields is it's got 50 lawyers in it. It's it's one of the biggest. And um, yeah, so they really need a lot of firepower for these cases. On the trainee lawyer front, so you're starting your training contract, looking at the NQ market now and thinking, oh God, by the end of this, I might not have a job. That does open up your options a lot more and therefore you might want to consider different types of litigation going forward. Traditionally, I, th- I think litigation associates, you know, let's say 20 years ago, didn't have a huge amount of control over who they acted for, where they acted for. Boutiques now give you much more uh, choice and, and therefore much more power in terms of what you want from your career. Um, and it means that you can choose between, you know, do you want to work at a firm where there's, you know, a dozen associates on a case or, you know, like, say, a Clifford Chance? Or do you want to work at a Quinn Emanuel where there's three or four associates on a case? Do you, do you want to work at a firm that typically acts for banks or against banks or like a Pogus Goodhead where you're acting against polluters or a firm where, you know, you may not want to act for polluters, but, you know, you're not that fussed about that. So, so you have significantly more power and choice now than you did back then. I do think that there's something uh, notable about Pogus Goodhead for the simple reason is that litigators have not up until now been subject to this kind of paywall rhetoric. It's not really been part of the way that they do business. Um, Now, you could say that maybe the bar acts a little bit like that because it is all about so much more individual effort and so on. But up until now, we haven't had the big US firms coming in and promising all sorts of money and that being really, really material part of what their offer is. Um, There have been firms like Quinn Emanuel, which clearly that is part of their offer, but they're not 
desperately upfront about it. It's just assumed that you're going to get a whole bunch of money. So Pogus Goodhead coming in and saying actually money is really part of it sort of skews, I think, the debate a little bit oddly. And I think if there's going to be a free market of firms within within litigation, you've also got a massive free market of pay styles, lifestyles, what you have on offer. So I think actually there's going to be a much bigger variety of what you can choose as a litigator than you, you can't really do that in corporate at all. And I think I, I totally agree. And, you know, in many ways, you could see this as the starting gun for this new world of formats of pay and that sort of thing, which is influenced heavily or, or driven really by litigation funding and, and all the options that that gives to firms to do this. Um, so I, I think what will be really interesting to see is if from now on, we start seeing other firms take up similar options, where they say, you know, we'll, we'll pay we'll pay associates based on when we win a case, which has always been a really nice thing for firms and, and for funders. But it's very much been a kind of you know partner benefit rather than, than an associate benefit and as you see more demand being made by associates to how they run their careers you might see more demand for you know well all right I'm going to work on these massive cases but I want I want the benefit from it. Um, I think it's also interesting in terms of what this means for the claimant side of the market because you know you can go and work at like we said a Freshfield or a Herbie's and you can defend some of these class actions and earn you know a decent uh, salary there um, but um, Pogus Goodhead coming into the mix and saying oh we'll pay ours two million uh, a million two million um, these claimant side firms you know they really build their practice on saying you can work on the most exciting group actions out there Hausfeld etc well what are they going to do now with this new player in the market that's saying we're gonna you know pay more than uh, both both claimant and defendant side how much if you decide to work claimant side how much can you swap back in and work defendant side because anecdotally you hear from recruiters it's kind of difficult to place Quinn Emanuel lawyers Uh, into the big city firms because they think actually culturally they approach cases in a bit of a different way etc what's your feeling Annabelle for the way that Annabelle and Christian actually about how that is whether there's it's so bifurcated that that fork actually once you reach that fork in the road you don't have an awful lot of options after that um, I'd actually disagree completely, to be fair, because um, one one really interesting example, which I found out in my piece on the on the Competition Appeal Tribunal um, class actions, was that Ashurst, for example, didn't have any defence side mandates at all, n- nothing. Now they've secured two in record time, and that was literally through the hire of Anna Morphy, who came from claimant side firm Hausfeld, and she got two of those class actions they're defending to now in the space of five months after having none. Um, so yeah, I would I would actually say you know you, you're really well equipped if you've been at a, def- a claimant side firm first and then gone to a defendant side firm. And what's your view, Christian, on Quinn? Because you've been following them very closely. Yeah, I, I, I think it's dependent on what area of law you're talking about. There are certainly areas where that that does work. What Annabelle's saying does work definitely, and I think there are areas where not so much. So I mean, for example, IP is a great example where it's very hard to act for. Uh, big corporations like let's say Apple or something like that um, where they really if you worked for them and then you go to a claimant side firm and want to work against them they will immediately try and get you taken off the case and take the firm taken off the case because you've got effectively insider knowledge of, of how they work um, similar with some of the banks and that sort of thing as well so so it does it does depend but Annabelle's absolutely right it's it's much less of a um, of, of a roadblock than it used to be uh, and it is, I mean, there are dozens of examples of, of very successful partners who have done both. 
So, Christian, can I can I press you on Quinn because they were they were a pioneer actually in this, and they they've they've been growing their practice really successfully over the last sort of decade or so. Um, what's their associate cohort looking looking like in their talent pipeline? Because they what they do really matters within this market. Look, Quinn are relatively cautious with who they hire and how they go about it, depending on what it is. I mean, I mean, their hiring of uh, their first IP partner last year kind of really signified that they'd, they'd been known for looking in London for over a decade for an IP partner because IP is a huge part of their practice. In fact, I think the biggest part of their practice in the States, yet they hadn't hired anyone here for over a decade to do that. And that was all about conflicts and all about making sure they weren't hiring someone who'd be conflicted out and then ruin it for the rest of the firm, basically. Um, So they are cautious about that. They are cautious about hiring from places like the Magic Circle where they then might... um, be restricted in terms of of who they can act for because they've hired an associate who was acting for uh, I don't know Barclays or something like that and they want to act against them. In saying that, it's definitely not the end of the world either. Uh, they will they they do now commonly hire from um, from the Magic Circle and those sorts of firms as well. And I think they you know when they when they began in London they were very much a conflict firm. They went to firms and said. We're going to, uh, you know, if, if you can't act for a, a client because you're conflicted out, send it to us and we'll do a good job. They do that much less now and they are much more out there competing for work from the Magic Circle, from uh, other big city practices that perhaps they were doing less so when they started. So Charlotte, do you think um, sort of junior associates are at all aware of this, actually who they who they have acted for and entirely inadvertently can, you know, sort of create life choices that they weren't even sort of aware of? I think it's a really interesting point. I, I wonder if they've got those kinds of long-term career aspirations in place at this stage. I feel like there's just a massive worry just to even get the job in the first place. So I think, yes, that's really interesting. But to get back to the point on more even just like the initial paycheck point, with these like litigation firms offering so much money, which is kind of entering into the same kind of competitive market as sort of more transactional corporate firms, they're being like, here's your money take it and that that kind of gives associates yes they can join and and get loads of money in their first three years but also they can then take that money and leave which they obviously could do anyway but it's kind of creating that assumption that they can just make their millions in the city in the first two years and then jump off which as we're going through this whole thing really mimics that kind of partner equity program but bringing that forward bringing that pipeline forward is that not actually going to uh, increase associate drop-off or is it going to make less associates want to qualify as part in the, in the long term? So I wonder if that's even a consideration for them at that stage in their career. Maybe associates and trainees need to be more aware now of where their career might take them. I mean, in a good way, because it means they have more choice now than they did 20 years ago. Um, but they, you know, early career decisions or, or lack of making decisions because they just kind of sleepwalking um, once they've got their job and everything like that, um, means that they are then limiting themselves further down the line. But I would say, Christian, that's always been the case. You talk to senior lawyers now, and they will always talk about the serendipity of their careers and they how they got put on this one thing and it took them in that direction. And, you know, whatever whatever planning you make as a junior associate there's some people who will actually be quite happy to see what happens in their careers and we can't think of all all junior lawyers as people who sit down and they have 
the absolute goal that, oh, I will be working in this niche area of law and doing this and earning this and have this job title by the time I'm 37. That kind of growth mindset is something that you kind of have to encourage when you're working at a firm that has so many different sector specialisms or practice areas. You kind of have to be like, look, you're not guaranteed to necessarily end up where you want to, but we will train you and we will give you interesting experiences that allow you to end up somewhere that you'd like to be and then you can develop that into something that you eventually want it to be so it's always something that we're really hammering home it's just to keep your options open because those options might be limited in the future and when it comes to the NQ market as we're seeing at the moment. In that case Annabelle do you see any movement at all and interest uh, from litigators, particularly non-partner litigators, to move into the funders themselves because there's a clearly an interesting and very new career path available there. Yeah, I would say that's true. I'd say X amount of years years ago, it was seen as a very strange move for a lawyer to move out of a law firm and into a funder. This is becoming um, much more normal now. Um, pretty much the, the funders are pretty much all made up of ex-lawyers now so yeah I'd say it's definitely a viable career path um, and especially on the younger end um, I've actually met people at funders um, that said you know they were associates at law firms and they just said well wanted to make money a little bit quicker uh, didn't think I wanted to do this anymore and so I decided to join a litigation funder instead and those aren't always litigators either that's that's transactional lawyers doing that too. But are they happy? (laughs) (laughs) I do not know the answer to that. (laughs) Sorry. Um, In terms of choosing, you know, your career path and who you act for and and who you want to act for and that sort of thing, um, I mean, we've seen it really recently in terms of the post office and, you know, Annabelle, you spoke to Freeths a lot. There's also a feeling that you don't want to find yourself on the other side of that case when it becomes this, this sort of thing where you feel like you might be acting for the baddies as... Um, as we said on our earlier podcast this year. Freeths, we should say, acted against the post office. Um, I mean, what did you make of all of that, Annabelle? Well, I'd say we need to remind ourselves that obviously barristers, there's a, there's a cab rank rule. Um, they don't have a choice uh, a, a lot of the time of who, who they uh, represent. And um, at law firms, you do have that choice. And what's interesting is the wider general public, you still see a lot of, you know, hurrah online if a barrister acts for somebody and the general public doesn't understand that there's a cab rank rule in place. And despite that barrister explaining that there's a cab rank rule in place, um, you know, that that doesn't really, you know, that social media is already on fire by then. But the difference here with, with solicitors um, is that they do have a choice or they if they don't have a choice at that firm, then they can go to another firm like Pocus Goodhead, like, you know, uh, I mean, I suppose the difference here as well is that if you want to go to a more kind of activist type firm, you could go somewhere like Lee Day. But the difference here is that Pocus Goodhead is now saying they're offering a lot more money than your, your Lee Day's. I think what's really clear is that um, that this market has been set alight, not just by Pocus Goodhead, but actually the funders and the great big group action claims that have created completely new structures for everyone that is therefore throwing up into the air all the choices that you can make and that's a good thing I mean I think to your point Christian about actually why do you want to know exactly where you're going to be sorry Rich you made that point you know when you're 37 that's a terrible situation to be in because you know why bother to turn up at work if you can predict everything um and I think also we should be encouraging a spirit of improvisation around your careers. Why shouldn't you decide all of a sudden that this is the way to be? And I think this 
absolutely allows way more flexibility in what you can decide to do, whether you can switch sides, as it were, learn completely new skills, even go to funders. I think this is by far the most exciting time to be a litigation associate that has ever been. So are we concluding that maybe you you might not be a virtuous millionaire, but you could certainly be a virtuous litigator earning very good money in the city now? And equally, you could be a not so virtuous litigator acting for, you know, horrible people, if, if, that's, if that's what really floats your boat. Or you could be a millionaire on completely neutral cases that are very boring if, if, if you really go for that. Um, basically, there's huge diversity now as a litigator and it's super exciting. Well, that's a really good place for us to wrap up. Thanks very much for listening. Can I put a call out, please, again, um, to say that if you do like The Lawyer Podcast, uh, go onto your app and give it a rating. That would be fantastic. And if you don't like it, um, um, don't. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at podcast at thelawyer.com. And of course, you can find out more about anything and everything we've been discussing at thelawyer.com. We will be back again in a fortnight with lots of new and exciting content for you. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.